Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. I'm going to welcome our co-host for today, um, uh, Marcus Cobb. He's the CEO of Jammer, and uh, uh, it's the music industry's only end-to-end ownership and split payments platform, uh, which is a fantastic tool. And if you looked at what's going on in the creative space right now, it's a it's a giant problem that um, Jammer has figured out how to solve. So let me let Marcus introduce himself, and then uh, we'll dive in. Yeah. Thanks, Scott, so much, man. I appreciate it. And I, I know you've been working hard and the whole team. So, uh, but I've still been looking forward to this since we talked about it. It was the last last week or so. Uh, so, Marcus Cobb, CEO, co-founder of Jamber. Um, we essentially our job is just to get people paid for the things they create and get them paid as quickly as possible. Uh, which sounds incredibly simple, but as you entre- entrepreneurs know, if if I'm creating a business out of it, it's probably not simple. Uh, so, uh, background in tech and uh, design. And long-time entrepreneur, but we're going to talk about how I still needed all of that experience and a lot of advice along the way to ride a very intense pivot this year and how that pivot has led to extraordinary growth for me and my team. So looking forward to talking more about that. Start, start again. Let's go back and, uh, and time a little. Uh, this is not your first startup. Right. So um, why don't you just take us through your journey to here? What were the first, what were the highlights, the, the challenges, and uh, kind of catch us up on your journey to, let's say, the beginning of this year? Well, it all started when I was a little child. <laughs> I was five years old, and uh, I wanted to make money to buy blow pops. And to do that, I had to make paper airplanes for my friends. And next thing you know, I was a billionaire overnight. That's, that's my story, Scott. <laughs> No, I think I like um, the first part of that's true. I think the billionaire part <laughs> might be a stretch. But I'm excited to find out. The billionaire part is, is a bit of a stretch. I mean, it, we're not quite there yet. Because if, if we were, you would, you, I'd be all over the news in, in my yacht telling you guys exactly that. But uh, uh, in reality, like most of us, money has very little to do with why I do what I do. Um, I found out early on that I just I had a love for computers, love for computer science, and. Uh, it was magic to me, man, of the fact that you could write a few lines of code on screen and something would happen. And then you could maybe create a widget here or change, change, change people's lives with what you built. Um, I didn't even know that could be a career when I first got started. I don't know if, you, if, if anyone's familiar with languages like Visual Basic and, and QBasic back in the day, but that's actually where I started was QBasic. And there was this game called Gorillas. that was this little, you know, Poor graphics game, but state of the art at the time. You would throw bananas at these high rises, and the high rises would blow up. And you know, my first tweaks were changing the color of the banana. That was my entry into into coding. So, uh, but fast forward, uh, full circle. I got a job at Microsoft as a kid, um, and a bunch of computer jobs, and then got into a bunch of startups. What I learned, and to bring it to a head, what drives me today was one particular startup I worked at called uh, Tickets Now, which was a secondary ticket marketplace, like a stubhub.com for anything from events and concerts to sporting goods. When I joined this company, in my memory, I think we were doing about $20 million a year in revenue. 
And by the time I left a few years later, we were doing $300 million a year in revenue. And I wish there could be a time lapse of the parking lot during that time. Because when we started, all of us had these rusty cars with rust on the, on, on the you know, and, and beaters. And we were just doing it out of the love of it. And, and by the time the executive staff took us, people's lives had changed. The entire community changed around it. It just, Paul needed everything. Um, and then when that company sold uh, for a large amount of money, I think at the time it was close to 300 million, which was a lot in this little suburb of Chicago, people's lives were changed again overnight. And that was my, even though I knew how to create startups, that was my first time really seeing the kind of value creation, the ripple effect it can have in a positive way for people. And now I feel obligated, if you will, to take my skills for people and technology and create value wherever we can. I want to create great places to work and I want to create the kind of value that ripples uh, wherever we can. So talk more about that. I, I share that same, a very similar experience. I had access to computers. I like to do, you know, weird stuff and make my own games at the time. And then I actually started writing software for, for businesses because uh, they paid more. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, it turns out that was the, that was the important driver. Yeah. But the, the notion of of creating something that creates value. Uh, and, and it's something we hold dear at Upside, which is I don't expect everybody to be at Upside for the next 20 years. Um, I expect them to come here, do a great job, learn a bunch of things, and then, and then sort of go on to their next. And a big part of success from my standpoint is that sort of Upside diaspora, those people that have gone on and, and built other things. I'm curious for you, can you give some examples coming out of tickets now that not just what you've built, but others that have gone on to create other opportunities in and around Chicago? Cause it's not just that yeah. it's, it's not just that, Hey, we made some money and we bought a new car, right? It's right. right. Most of the time it's like, Hey, I went and joined another thing and did this. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I think for me, uh, I, even as a kid, I've always hated bullies. You know, I, I was especially kind of a small frame person, but anytime I'd see, I wouldn't use the word injustice as a kid, but anytime I kind of saw someone being bullied or, or taken advantage of, I was compelled to fill that vacuum and, and defend that. And, you know, my, my kids are actually kind of the same way. And I say that to say this, when I started Tickets Now, um, at the time I was giving a, a team of throwaways. So they gave me a team of de developers and they said, hey, this team is crap. They're not going to go anywhere. Get rid of the entire team and replace the team. And I've known, I knew that couldn't possibly be true. Right. Uh, so what we did is we met with every single person on the team and we found out what their goals were. And one particular example, the young woman, Elena, was a brilliant coder um, and she just wanted to be paid as much as her colleagues, her male colleagues. She was producing more uh, uh, features, you know, per cycle than any of her male colleagues. And she knew she was making 20, 25 percent less than any of them. She was one of the best in the room. Uh, so she threatened to quit. And what I told her said, Hey, look, let me help me reach our team's goals. And I will make sure that you reach your financial goals. And you're one of the top, you're, you're paid according to your performance. And we shook hands on that. Uh, and we achieved that goal in about a year. And Elena went on to be a PMO. She went on to create a bunch of teams with similar kind of, uh, I'll say cultures and, and foundations. And I took it as a privilege to be there. I don't think that, I don't take credit for that. I think I felt like that was my job in that moment was to create space for her uh, to just show her superpowers. And that is 
once you start doing that, you can't stop. Now, we haven't gotten it perfect, but by and large, anyone that's ever worked for me has gone on to bigger and better things. And I think all we're doing is creating that kind of, for lack of a better phrase, that can I say shit? Kind of that kind of shit umbrella, right? Like just give them space and opportunity, remove fear, remove the toxicity of, of all that stuff and just give them a challenge that, that, you know, and let them go full, full speed ahead. And that's my pursuit, Scott. Like that's, that's honestly what I love to do. So to do that at scale, I had to make sure I was aligning myself with business models that could scale too. Uh, so for me, the moniker is the goal is profits, the reasons people. Um, and that's what got me back out of bed. You know, even after we made money, what got me back into the game of creating startups was that. That's a great, that's a great way of looking at it. I'll, um, I'll highlight something. Some, we, we talk about different kinds of books here. There's a book that I've uh, come to really like from a leadership standpoint. It's called uh, Extreme Ownership. It's written by a couple of Navy SEALs. I think I have a copy of it here. Um, I'm going to take notes while we're <laughs> right now. Yeah, no but it's, but, it's, um, but, but one of the things that comes out of the book, there it is. Um, one of the things that comes out of the book is some stories and, and the, the central thematic is there are no bad teams. There's only weak or poor leadership. And I've seen again and again, uh, you know, that play out where the team's confused or dysfunctional or whatever. And then all of a sudden you get a different type of leadership and then you can kind of both create that space, but everybody kind of steps up uh, yeah. if given the opportunity. Um, so it's cool to see, you know, you experiencing that and continuing to, to do that. Uh, so let's come to, to Jammer. Um, tell us about the founding story of Jammer and then kind of what your hopes and dreams were uh, coming into the beginning of this year. And then we'll dive into um, what actually happened. I'll keep it short and sweet so you can kind of drive me and direct me where you, where you think we should drill down on. But the problem we saw, so after we exited and, and you know, did pretty well in tech and Chicago was very good to me as a tech entrepreneur, uh, very much a meritocracy. I never felt any limitations either for being relatively new. I definitely never felt, felt limitations for uh, being black or any of that. It was more, we just created value together and be the best at your craft. And for me, when it came to creating systems at scale, meaning really big systems that do a lot of things but never go down, that's my gift. I'm, I'm one of the best at doing that. Um, and so fast forward, I was working with a buddy of mine in the music industry kind of casually, had been around music for a while. I, I played around in fashion for a while, just like a lot of you, lots of different curiosities, lots of different interests. And if I have a chance to get into a foray, I'm probably going to take it. And uh, one of my friends was working on a really big music album. Um, I won't say who it was, but a couple of the largest artists in the world. And this guy had been working day in and day out to be a part of this project for over 10 years, from a kind of a junior engineer to mid-engineer and then the first engineer. And for those who don't know, an engineer is the person that sits at the kind of mixing board of recording studio, and they try to get all the sounds just right, like almost like mixing a recipe as a, as a chef. And uh, this guy's big moment comes in. And he gets to work with like, I'm talking Bieber level, Timberlake, Timberlake level uh, type of artist. And it's life changing, except that in his case, uh, because they spelled his name wrong, he got zero credit for any of that work. And it was like it never happened. It just evaporated overnight. And as my friend, that was tragic. And I think that's where the seeds were sown. But then I found out it was systemic that in software, we have project management tools. Even if we're working with teams all over the world, we have methodologies for how to 
work together and keep track of the project and deliver that project. Music is more like I start with a piece of paper and I ball it up into a ball and I throw it over the wall at you and then you add music to it and you throw the wall. We don't know who's on the other side of the wall a lot of times. And uh, that's not by design. It's just kind of how the organic nature of music and we wanted to solve that. Um, so we still distilled it down to two problems. One problem was discovery. How do I find great people to work with? Um, actually, I'll say three problems. Discovery, how do I find people to work with? Accreditation, how do we make sure that we get people properly accredited for that work? And then third, compensation, how do we get them paid for that work? So when Jamber dove in, we, I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur, I've done this before, I'm really good at what I do. We jumped in to solve all those problems. And then every thesis I had about building a, a company around a platform model was wrong. Every assumption I had about the strategies that had worked for me in the past were completely wrong. And uh, there's a couple people that I recognize on here uh, that are in the space. And the reason is very simple to sum it up. In entertainment, think Netflix, think um, Spotify, the value that content, the value creation is outside of the corporation, right? The music studios are not inside of the, the record companies and all, all that stuff's happening outside. Think of record companies and, you know, music, uh, even film studios as VCs. So we were trying to go to those companies to sell project management software for startups. That's not how you would do it today, right? You wouldn't go to a VC and sell, try to sell Asana <laughs> to all those startups. It doesn't make any sense. But that's how it looked from the outside looking in. That's how we approached it. And we burned through a lot of capital pretty quickly. And that put us in a situation where we had a great market. We had a great brand niche, but we had to figure out a way to improve our economics uh, coming into this year. And so you've spent the last... Um, really six, seven months, tr really transforming the whole business. And, um, you know, it sounds from your description, the real leverage was you know, problem number three, as opposed to trying to solve all three of those challenges. So right. tell us like how you came to that conclusion and, um, and sort of what's happened since. Well, actually, remember, I, I talked to you, Scott, earlier in the year, um, uh, David Hall from Rise of the Rise introduced us, and uh, I was actually seeking your advice at that time because I was running the back end of, of that pivot. And I believe that as entrepreneurs, every company we create is a manifestation of ourselves. It's a projection of our personalities and the personalities of our leadership teams. And in hindsight, our North Star was always about getting people paid. Even the kind of collaboration, discovery part, accreditation was all ultimately to get people paid. But for some reason, that was the one use case we never mastered. And I think that subconsciously, I had been avoiding that use case for a while because I, in, in my private time, I think that I knew that was a do or die use case. So I was building everything but that. I didn't do it on purpose and I knew not to do that, but I was building everything except for what was most important. And... Um, it was a great suite. It was really shiny. People loved us. and It was super cool. And, you know, we, we, we still changed lives and added value. But when, when, when COVID especially hit this year, there were two kind of meteorites that hit our planet. The first meteorite was I did not know there was a chasm of funding between kind of seed, series seed funding, and series A. Music tech is a very polarizing space. People love it or they hate it. There's a lot of PTSD from the Napster days, especially in the VC community. So when you go for Series A, you have to be an outlier. You can't go into a Series A looking for $10 million on only you know, a $5 million run rate. You need to be 
doing much better than that and Jabber just wasn't quite there. So we had to get a bridge and that bridge evaporated in the 11th hour. I was so close, signed the, signed the paperwork, you know, um, and then boom, gone. And then right after that, COVID hits and we see it coming. I'm scrambling to raise capital, boom, gone. And then right after that, our team in Nashville, a tornado tore right through uh, our neighborhood and uh, a vicious tornado and kind of wiped out communications and operations for uh, two and a half, three weeks. And the series like each month was there. So uh, I started drinking a lot. <laughs> I started crying. I called Scott. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, the rise of the rest team and all my investors were, were, were kind of biting their nails, but okay, Marcus, you guys have figured this out. Uh, so that was it. That was, that was the moment, but it turned out to be this beautiful, magical moment. The one thing that I'll say, Scott, is one thing that my experience did teach me, which was hard to do, was to cut immediately. We had all these great products we were excited about, but we knew, me and my co-founder, my guest, Bomkar, we knew that to survive, we had to do two things. We had to be in alignment with the team to see if they were going to stay in it with us, if they still believed in the vision. Two, we had to cut everything that did not have a high probability of being a profitable business center in the next 12 months. And we had to do it within a week. And that was a painful, scary time because we knew we we're doing the right thing, but there's no book for that. And if you haven't been an operator or entrepreneur, you don't know that. So not only are we doing that, we're selling that to our VCs and selling that to our investors. And we don't really have all the language for it. And we're trying to keep the team together. And we missed a couple of payrolls during that time. It was just, ah, you know, it was crazy intense, but we knew we were doing the right thing. And what kept us alive uh, was A, the Jamper team said, hey, we know we're changing lives here. If you as founders think you can get us to shore, we're in. And B, what Mangesh and I looked at is we had an option to sell, exit, you know, Acquahire. We could have saved everyone's money and maybe sold to an entertainment company. But what we looked at was our only problem was cash. We were getting traction across all our product lines. We knew this was a valuable product. We tested it. And then next thing you know, rocket ship. So how did you have the, the sort of fortitude to stick it out? Sounds like the team was a big part of the fuel, but was there some signal that you got? Was there some first customer that jumped in? Was there something that, that was a, you know, a, a key data point that said, we're headed in the right direction. Let's just, you know, push through and get, and get after it. Yeah. So to drill down on that, we had, as we're kind of telling the team, and as you, as you can imagine, when a, when a startup team is going through this kind of pressure cooker, you, the cracks in the foundation come out. Right. So you have um, certain employees that don't handle that situation very well at all. Um, if there's any kind of toxic underpinnings, those come out. Right. Like any like any other wound or, or kind of scratch, it just it can fester and get infected. So we had to first excise any of that it had to go. And that meant parting ways with a couple of people. Um, and it also meant just being really candid with ourselves, you know, um, bringing our advisors closer to the problem so we can have candid conversations about the problem. And then we did two things. The hackathon I mentioned was really important. We said, okay, look, we're getting advice. The and we were kind of against the wall too, because for me, I've studied pandemics. I've studied war. I like studying macro civilization movements. And I knew the moment COVID uh, hit a certain point, it was only going to get worse. And I knew that 
capital was going to have a bit of a, a slow season for at least a few quarters. But I also knew that if we fired all of our employees, we couldn't sell. They were going to have a hard time finding a job. And so Mangesh and I said, look, we have to do absolutely everything to maintain the livelihood of this team. They've stuck by us through everything. And how do we test it? So we had a brainstorm session, a hackathon at one of our uh, team members' house, uh, Rachel Knepp, who is in charge of growth. And we whiteboarded out what's the one thing we're going to sell. We then put together a pitch deck of just that one thing, which was still the payment thing on top of our existing technology. And that same, the very next day of that hackathon, we blasted that out to about 200 prospective clients. And the light came on when about 60% of those came back interested in the first week. And then we said, we have a chance here. That's a really high return rate. Uh, And then it was just a matter of just staying alive one more day. So then uh, me and a couple of the investors bridged immediately. We then got the uh, disaster recovery loan for the tornado that went through Nashville. And then we got the PPP loan on top of that. And that gave us enough runway runway for uh, the sales cycle. Our advisors told us the sales cycle would take about eight months because they'd been in the space before. And so we knew we had line of sight at this point in time. So after that, the, pr- the pressure lifted immediately and it was just about execution and the team did, the team did, did that. Uh, so we went from, you know, our, our MRR was kind of like this, tanked in Q1. And then now I think we're, uh, the last number I heard is probably, well, they have a lot of bookings. I don't want to put the numbers on camera, but let's just say that um, we're, we're now in a situation just six months later, we're able to have very serious VC conversations and we hope to close uh, our Series A here in the next few weeks. That's awesome. It's a, uh, uh, you know, you've hit something when, when you, when you get that kind of feedback, right. That quickly yeah. um, at that scale. And, you know, it's not always the case that we're, you know, brave enough to do that. And there's something about being desperate enough to do that. that gives us the guts sometimes to do things that we otherwise would, would be anxious or nervous about doing. We just say, you know, yeah. we have a choice. Let's go. Yeah, man. Um, and all of that, right? I mean, I was, I got, I got religious again really quickly. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, uh, I, I blamed myself for everything that's going wrong. You know, how, how, this, how can this happen to me, a seasoned entrepreneur, entrepreneur? Where did I mess up? And then, as the finger pointing started, that landed in our laps too. And uh, and as we were slow paying vendors, that landed in our laps too as founders. So we just we just circled the wagons, and especially we tried to keep as much of that noise away from our team. So as founders, we tried to absorb a lot of that sound so that they could execute on it. Um, but at, we were also all in. You know, once we decided to go, you know, I, I've always heard. I think Scott and I talked about this, but courage is not not being afraid. It's doing it afraid anyway, right? Yeah. I think we were still legitimately concerned and afraid, but we were also had no choice. And for me, I've been, I've, I've lost before. I've made money. I've lost money. This wasn't about any of that. This was about the livelihoods that we felt like if we failed at this mission, no one was going to do it for a long time. There are millions of people counting on us. And then there's this core group of just 20 plus people that are counting on us right now. And you don't, you don't just let that evaporate. You do everything you can. You leave nothing on the field. And we got lucky fishing on the other side of the boat. And, you know, here we are. And I know it's not true for everybody. I know there are startups that went through the exact same fight and the timing was on their side. And that's not to their fault. Uh, for us, we got lucky that the timing was on our side. Uh, because 
it just so happened we were selling a payment platform at a time when the music industry desperately needed payments to work. COVID made payments very, very important to the space. And had it not been for all of that timing and market pressure, I don't think we'd have the velocity that we have today. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting that it created pressure. It shortened the time cycles for a lot of yes. things. People were making yeah. decisions much more quickly. Yes. Um, so at the same time, you 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 needed to raise capital, and uh, I'm curious about the choices that you made in terms of raising money. Right. You you obviously had taken some capital on in the kind of the first iteration of Jammer. Mm-hmm. You, you now you now in the process of raising more capital. Talk a little bit about those choices along the way and, and what you think the big difference is between where you were at the beginning of the year looking to raise capital and that big gap between seed stage and series A and kind of where you are now. Yeah, man. I, I, I have a saying, you know, don't, don't pray for rain in the desert. You know, uh, if you want rain, go to a rainforest. Go, go, go where the water is. And in this case, we had to work backwards. Where was capital coming from? Who was investing? What was growing in the space that we were close to or tangential to? And in our world, it was a simple change in our moniker in some ways from music tech to fintech. And embracing the, the tenants and the KPIs that come with being a fintech company and repositioning that to the investors. And then secondarily, we had to show them how we could grow beyond beautiful little kid there, David, uh, we had to show them how we could grow beyond uh, just music and grow into something horizontal, something that could be the toothbrush for everyone. Uh, we had to play the game. You know, we had to tell the story of how they're going to get their returns over time and also mean it. it had to be sincere. That was, that was, uh, if you look at my pitch decks between when we were music industry royalties and when we were FinTech, they're completely different pitch decks. But it's actually the same technology and same team behind the scenes. We just, we pointed our ship in a different direction. <laughs> I think I saw both of those decks. You did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, I think, yeah, I think you saw both of them, meaning you like shredded one to little bitty pieces and gave it back to me. And then I came back with a much cleaner one, which was better. And that, but that kind of feedback helped me move fast. I just want to reason, it's one of the things I like about talking with you and our friends is the faster you give me candid feedback, the faster I can fix it. If you're, if you're pussyfooting around it, I don't know how to respond. I don't know what I'm missing. And my deck was so bloated, right, Scott? It was just, it was kind of really wordy and just this, it's more like a manifesto than a pitch deck. And, uh, you know, we had to just cu- kind of cut bait and redesign it. And this made all the difference. But also, a lot of these VCs had been watching us for a while and watching Jabber for a while. And I, for, for, you know, entrepreneurs out there, make yourself known. You know, put your story out there. Network where you can. It's, it's really, really important that the industry kind of knows about you before you go raise capital. Yeah, I, I'll pile on there. I think a lot of, and I want to come back to the choice that you made, but if you make the choice to raise capital and, and your goal is to raise money from um, institutional investors, so professional yeah. venture capital firms is, is an example of that, then you need to start that process almost at the almost after you've done some enough customer validation to know that you have a product that's worth talking about because- yeah they need to, you need to socialize it and they need to sort of build a, a relationship and a reputation with you over right. time. And over it might time. be a year before you want to raise a nickel from anybody, That's but right. having those relationships and, and having them pay attention is a, it's a big part of the puzzle. But I, I'm curious, you know, what made you decide 
to raise capital at the very beginning? When you first started, Jim, or why why raise capital? Why not you know bootstrap it or or um, you know build an MVP first? What what was that decision making process like? Well, I think first of all, I feel really strongly that most startups don't need to raise capital, and I think. Uh, even for Jamber, our pivot was largely driven by the question of what would we do today if we could not raise any more capital? How would we be profitable in 12 months? And working backwards from that question largely illuminated the, 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 the model and the approach we have now. And it's really hard to ask yourself that question when you're asking yourself the question, how much money do I need to have 24 months of runway? Those are very different questions, right? Um, but for me, we knew early on that the, the music industry was a massive space in what we call an inefficient marketplace. And from reading and studying just as, as part of my craft, I know the inefficient marketplaces are capital intensive. The sales cycles are long. There's lots and lots of pivoting in, inside. Uh, and that turned out to be true in our case. So we had to raise capital to really sustain the gaps in revenue growth and the initial traction phase. Uh, to put in perspective, initial traction is that part where you have a product idea and then you make a promise what that product does and your customers buy that product and they say, yes, this does what I think it does. And then after that, you know, um, product market fit is when you can scale that out for a certain set of cohorts and groups of users and really get repeatable sales. Well, in our world, the initial traction phase took three and a half, four years for our first product. And in a good SaaS company, it takes two years. And those are some of the things that we looked at. Now, that being said, when I decided to raise capital, on the, I knew from the very beginning I was going to be on the VC treadmill for at least the next 10 to 15 years. And so we made that decision going into it and committing to that process. It's a... Uh... It's interesting that treadmill, you know, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about it. And if you haven't raised capital before, you know, it's, this is a very, very simple uh, way of thinking about it. But for the most part, for the first two or three rounds, you got to think of it as basically giving up 20% of the value of the company in return for capital. And you're going to keep doing that. And, um, and that's okay, right? Particularly to your point, if you're building something that is a platform and is highly extensible and you know Sorry. there's going to be twists and turns along the way and that you're okay at the end, um, you know, owning a smaller piece of something really, really big. Right. The, the challenge I have with a lot of entrepreneurs is they haven't actually thought about their business as a big horizontal platform. They've thought about, they've right. created a business that That's might right. end up being a really nice business, but it's not going to be a horizontal platform. It's going to that's be right. a, that's right. a solution that somebody else is going to buy, in which case you've given up all this equity. That's right. And that's right. And what was it worth? You know, like if you're, if you're, if, if your plan is in my opinion, if you're looking to be honest with yourself, first of all, I, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time who unfortunately have been seduced by the, the, millions of stories out there about raising capital and this air of success we have raised capital. I don't necessarily feel good when I sell 20% of my company for $10 million. That's not a, that's not a successful day for me. Now it's a su successful partnership. If I have the right VC, if I could bootstrap, I would, I think it's, if you can bootstrap and build a business that, that could be a great target for an acquisition, that's a much healthier exit. And um, you're, Otherwise, you're going to find yourself 
slightly disappointed <laughs> with the return on hours and investment at the end of that seven-year cycle. Uh, so it either has to be really, really big where you get a small piece of it, or it's got to be medium-sized that you bootstrap and, and look into debt financing, which means kind of getting loans based on your traction, or bootstrap it and create a healthy business for you and your family and still change the quality of your life. Choose those zones. Don't let the external forces and, and kind of pop culture influence that decision. It needs to be soundly, fully informed. You, you brought up time there too. I think we are uh, often, uh, I guess, enamored with what appears to be an overnight success. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's interesting being in the music business because I think there are a lot of artists that appear as overnight successes and mm -hmm. you see yeah. the same in tech businesses. And as you point out, these are typically five to 10 year journeys. If you get to keep playing, there's plenty of, oh, there's plenty of off ramps that don't let you keep playing, in which right. case <laughs> you're done and you start over again. Yeah, that's right. But that's it, right. It, it's a, to think anything else. So, uh, so I'm curious when you look at, at, you know, kind of the overnight success, um, you know, how do you, how do you sort of peel that back or how do you just sort of ignore it? Like what's your strategy for, for not getting caught up in that, I guess. I don't even know of any overnight success stories. You know, I think it, I think it's, that's counterbalance with how the universe itself works. You know, if, if you plant food, if we were planting corn, corn is going to yield a lot more corn, but it's not going to do it overnight. Uh, there, there's, there's a process. The few people I know who have the appearance of overnight success lost it just as quickly. And the reason for that is that the process is the underpinning for the success. It's the journey that matures into success. Success is not an event. It's, it's a process going through. And typically, it's many, many stages of that process that with, with no end to it if we're lucky. So overnight success shouldn't be something that you aspire to. If, if you want to make a quick buck, there's different ways to do that. You know, go day trade, go, go flip money. But if you want to create value, then the journey needs to be about creating value. And your definition of success needs to be how that value is impacting people's lives around you. And you measure that one life at a time, the sustainability of it, because you don't get it right. So it's more of a ratio. You're always going to have employees that don't like working for you or people that say bad things about you or negative press. That's always going to be part of the journey. But you have to have a candid frustrum of here's the lives we want to change here's our mission and our place in the world and this is what we're committed to and the firmer that gets in your psyche and in yourself it becomes contagious with your team and that will go into the brand authenticity of your products and and hopefully create a return on investment for you but overnight success is is like overnight anything it's it doesn't exist it's a lie <laughs> it's a lie and it can set you up for It'll make, it can make you feel, I'll end it with this, Scott. I think, you know, what I do, how I level set these things, is I read a lot. I know, Scott, you read a lot too. Read biographies wherever you can. It's really cool to get the back-end stories of the companies that we admire from the mouths of the founders and not the mouths of, 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 the, of the journalists. You can't put a, a success story in 500 words. It's impossible. Uh, so read, read these books because they'll make you feel like you're on a team with people who have done it before. And you'll realize, you'll start seeing patterns in what's happening in your life and their lives. I knew from the books I've read and the founders I've read that if Jamber could stay alive one more day and this light at the end of the tunnel really did exist, 
that the growth would probably happen. It wasn't just a hope. I knew the cycle in that success journey, and I knew what place we were at at it. Now, it was dark at times, and I didn't always feel encouraged at times, but I knew historically that momentum was on our side, if we can say like one more day. But I knew that because I had candid data to work with as opposed to Twitter feeds <laughs> of success. So I think that's really, really important. Read as much as you can. You know, whatever that format that is for you, read, read as much as you can. So do you have a, a biography, a particular book that you thought was particularly valuable to you in your journey? It could be from any point in time. Most of the ones I've read fill in the colors, but I was really impacted by Creativity Inc., um, the, the Pixar story, um, because I thought that uh, John did a great job of, I didn't know, for example, that they spent years on a particular movie and they had to get this movie out to, to stay alive. And they almost deleted every file and every asset and they had to rally, you know, and this is well into their success. Um, I didn't know that they went, I think it was a f three, four years, you know, without producing any revenue at all. Uh, uh, that was a beautiful story for me and how they evolved through that transformation. Um, uh, I also liked, of course, the Steve Jobs docu you know, documentary. Um, Isaac wrote a fantastic book there. I read it a couple of times. And then Idea Men was a great one with Paul Allen and Bill Gates. Idea Man's a lot of fun because you can tell Paul Allen is not as, uh, you can tell he has his own opinions about Bill Gates. So you get more of a sobering perspective of their journey together as founders, which I thought was beautiful. Uh, so those are three that I'd recommend from a founder's journey standpoint. That's awesome. So uh, I, we had a question flow through around, how did you start to create relationships? Like what was your strategy to create the early relationships for Jammer? Um, when maybe you didn't have any, I know you danced a little bit around in the music industry, but yeah. do you have a, a technique or a strategy that you used early on to kind of explore? Serendipity kicked in. We were uh, working out of 1871, which is a co-working space in Chicago, really large co-working space, uh, great community. And they are also a Google entrepreneur center. And there's a smaller co-working space in Nashville called the Nashville EC or National Entrepreneur Center. And they were touring 1871 because they were about to launch this music technology accelerator, the first one in the world, um, backed by all the big record labels and, you know, country music television, all these great, great companies. And we got invited to join Project Music. So out of that uh, particular, uh, uh, it was a four-month accelerator a little bit of cash, not a lot, like 30 grand, um, but we didn't go for the cash. But out of that group, I got a crash course in the, in the music industry and we saw the money moved. I don't think I'd still be doing Jamber had it not been for that engagement because the music industry is massive. And we were able to, Nashville, if you've ever been, the entire music industry is in about a five you know, 10 square mile space, everything from artists to music videos to, you know, sheet music, classical music and video games, everything's in this one space. And you can really get your arms around the entire thing and meet great people who would just tell us everything. I mean, they'd give me their financials. They would give me all their credits, everything and anything. If we were, if we were willing to help, they gave us everything. And that really accelerated our learning cycle, which fueled our products. Um, that was the, the kind of the, the, the initial trampoline that we jumped off of to where we're at now. And after that, we just spoke. I took every speaking opportunity I could. We went to every event, every convention, and we just hit the pavement, which uh, Jamper's kind of an, a global niche brand now. Anyone in the space knows who we are. And it, it's because of that. But also, it's a, great, it's a great industry. People care about this problem. 
that care about getting artists paid and getting people paid. And so for us, it's kind of an easy sell to say, we're going we're gonna to help with that and, and genu genuinely meet it. That's, that's really awesome. Uh, it's fun listening to you talk about those two. Um, I was, uh, I, I worked with Kevin Willer at startup when we were at, when we were at startup America, I toured 1871 before there was anything in there. It was all concrete and open yeah. space. And Michael Burcham was one of the first people who reached out to me when I ran startup America, when he had started the, the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. So it's a little shocking that you and I didn't run into each other a lot sooner. Or a oh, that's fascinating. I didn't realize, you know, both Kevin and Michael, we were, yeah, we were always in the kind of the same orbit the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Howard Tolman who's running 1871 now. Yeah. Um, so well, he, he, he resigned now. It's Betsy is Betsy is the new one. Ah. Howard Tolman was CEO when I was there. Oh, that's right. He was, and he's, he's also a music guy too. So he's, he was, he was the one that told me to go to Nashville. He's like, Marcus, you're not going to do music tech in Chicago. Take your butt to Nashville. I have no desire to go to Nashville, man. I'm staying in Chicago. And uh, as I've told the story many times, I, I'm an, I'm an artist, trade by trade guys. I'm a computer guy and a music guy. And I literally cried when I had to move from Chicago to Nashville. I'm like, I'm, I'll be back in four months. And it's been five years and I'm still freaking here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, I had to fall, had to fall the vibe. I had to go where the business was taking me and, and uh, we wouldn't be here otherwise. That's awesome. I think that, that a few things that I'd say have changed and, and, and I'll, I'll let you get the final word here, Marcus, but no worries. places like 1871, the National Entrepreneur Center, chances are, uh, especially because of the work that a lot of us did at Startup America, there are more physical places that bring entrepreneurs together that that's a great place to start creating relationships because Marcus used the word serendipity. I believe that we create our own serendipity by being engaged enough so that we're yeah. in the way of the opportunities as they flow. So yeah. if you had one last, you know, the 60 second piece of advice for, for our entrepreneurs here and who watch this later, what would it be? I think the number one most important thing you can do is to the best of your ability, take your ego out of the equation. I think ego, our projection of self and who we, how we want the world to see us has too many hooks of leverage on it. Uh, people can judge us and that shame can put us in a corner. Um, we can be afraid to ask for help when we, when we really need help. We can put unfair uh, you know, expectations on ourselves. Uh, but if we try to maintain that we're students of this game, we don't have it all figured out. We're learning together. And we, we, as entrepreneurs and founders, maintain candid conversations with each other, then I think that lifts all boats. The, the, the more candid our conversation gets as founders, like I, I keep imagining this kind of anonymous, anonymous Slack channel or something where founders, like a stack overflow for founders, right? Where you can ask anything and everything as candid as possible. Because I think if we can take the, the fear of shame off of founders, uh, that there's going to be a lot more light there to help them flourish. And that's really, really important. So let's just take our ego out of it and, and be as candid with ourselves as we possibly can and fail forward. Uh, so an awesome landing spot, Marcus, thank you for being here today. Yeah, and, so. uh, and uh, for those of you, uh, if you go to foundersfocus.com and you sign up, uh, we'll invite you to our, our LinkedIn group, uh, which is a, is a safe place. People ask questions all the time about things, and uh, there really is no shame. If you've made the commitment to start a business, get after it, and everybody will, will chime in and help, especially other founders. Nice. Uh, so with that, I'm going to sign off for today. Uh, that was awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at tscottcase. 
And uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.